Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Our bodies are mazes of nerves, tissue, and blood vessels, but they're more connected than previously thought. Can studying our body's relationship with the brain provide unexpected answers to big medical questions? For example, can autism be reversed by changing bacteria in the gut? So microbes produce chemicals that interact with the brain, and this is one of the ways by which microbes can be involved in autism. We haven't proved that microbes cause autism, and this is not something that we want the people to take from our study. We just proved that by changing the microbiota in the gut, we can alleviate some of the autism symptoms. Can you die from a broken heart? For many years, it was thought that Takotsubo syndrome is a benign disorder. But in the last years, it has been uncovered that Takotsubo syndrome has a similar mortality rate to a heart attack. And could retraining the brain combat chronic breathlessness? It's a relationship that people often don't think about because people think about their lungs when they think about breathing. But actually, the brain has such a huge amount of control over your breath and breathlessness. Hello and welcome to Babbage, our weekly show on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor at The Economist, and this week it's all about the brain, heart, lungs, and gut. Is there such a thing as a gut feeling? Is broken heart syndrome linked to cancer? And could the brain help you catch your breath? First up, scientists have made a breakthrough which has brought them one step closer to understanding what causes autism spectrum disorder, or ASD. In the year 2000, a study found that the behavior of autistic children improved when they took an antibiotic called vancomycin. This discovery made scientists think, could autism be linked to something in your gut? Rosa Kromalnik-Brown is a professor in environmental engineering at Arizona State University. She's been exploring how microbiomes, the microorganisms in the gut, differ between autistic children and neurotypical children. And in her research, she's been carrying out fecal transplants, that is, implanting the healthy fecal matter of one person into another. Yes, I said fecal, that is to say, literally taking the poo from one person, which has certain microflora in their gut, and putting it into someone else's so that they can exhibit those same characteristics. Rosa Kromalnik-Brown. The first thing we did was just assessing what was the gut microbiota. And we also looked at metabolites, just looking at fecal samples from kids with autism and kids that were typically developing. The kids with ASD had lower diversity and they were missing some beneficial microbes. The next step was, can we fix it? What can we do to improve this situation? So we thought about what are ways to modulate the microbiome or to change the microbiome. One possibility is to provide probiotics. However, probiotics have only 
a small amount of different types of microbes, maybe 10 if you're lucky, 15 or 20. And all these microbes are microbes that their natural environment is milk, it's not the gut. Doing a transplant where you can introduce microbes that actually come from a healthy gut would give us a better chance for success if we wanted to increase diversity and increase the number of beneficial microbes in kids with autism. So what we did was a treatment we called um, MTT, which is Microbiota Transfer Therapy. We treated the children with two weeks of vancomycin initially to get rid of the resident bacteria in their gut. Then they had a bowel cleanse, and then they had a whole treatment with microbes where initially we had a high-dose FMT, and after that high-dose FMT, for 10 weeks they actually drank at home a low-dose of beneficial microbes. It's not just poop, which is what people think it is. It comes from poop from very, very healthy individuals. It's very well screened to make sure that there's no known pathogens or viruses. And it's cleaned out in a way that what we received from the company was 90-something percent microbes. So it's not a normal FMT where you just take poop. It's a very cleaned product that was preceded by antibiotics, uh, bowel cleanse, and also the children were at the time drinking a proton pump inhibitor, something that inhibits production of acid in the stomach in order for the microbes to survive as they were drinking them. Initially, the treatment was 10 weeks. Uh, we found amazing results because we found that all the children that participated in the study had severe GI symptoms and their GI symptoms improved dramatically, improved by 80%. And we also found that their behavior improved after they were in the treatment. Eight weeks later, they were still doing fine and it even looked like on behavior, they were doing a little bit better. In the beginning of the trial, 83% of our participants were rated as severe with autism. And at the end of the trial, we only had 17% of them were severe and 39% were mild and 44 were below the cutoff of mild. If you look at our data and you look at the graphs, one would say that about eight of our participants dropped off the scale of ASD after treatment. And two years later, we saw that some of the GI benefits were lost, but they were still much better than before treatment, and the behavior improved even more than what we saw at week 18, which was amazing and fascinating. One of the hypotheses that my lab is pursuing is that microbes produce and consume chemicals. Some of these chemicals are neurotransmitters or chemicals that somehow can interact with the brain. And this is one of the ways by which microbes can affect behavior. There are chemicals that are excitatory or non-excitatory. Another chemical that interacts with the brain, for example, is serotonin. It's supposed to be something that makes us happy. Most of the serotonin is produced by a precursor in the gut by microbes, which is tryptophan. So microbes produce chemicals that interact with the brain, and this is one of the ways by which microbes can be involved in autism. We haven't proved that microbes cause autism, and this is not something that we want the people to take from our study. We just proved that by changing the microbiota in the gut, we can alleviate some of the autism symptoms. We haven't made specific uh, connections to food. I know that Dr. Adams has done work with uh, supplements, not with food. But even with specific supplements, uh, what I heard from our study coordinator, who has worked a lot with him, she's never seen such a dramatic effect in any of the treatments that they've done before. This was the treatment where she saw the biggest and most dramatic effect. You know, people say the word 
have a gut feeling. <laughs> oh, it's not just a gut feeling. Your gut many times tells you what to do. There's a really strong connection between your gut and your brain, and it goes both ways. If you're anxious, if you're stressed, it sends signals to the gut that also damage the gut. This is something that has been known for many, many years. The fascinating thing is that right now we have the methods to measure and to prove that there is a real connection. And we have figured out that microorganisms are involved in that connection. My vision for the future is ideally we can identify a subset of microbes that are really important, that we can grow in fermenters and that way we don't have to rely on poop and identify some mechanisms by which these microorganisms are interacting with the host, chemicals that are producing, maybe chemicals that they are consuming, so we can come up with a cleaner way to help more people. Professor Kamalnik-Brown, thank you. To find out more about the story, go to economist.com. We've published an article on this. And if you like our journalism, take out a subscription. Just go to economist.com slash radio offer to get 12 issues for $12 or 12 pounds. Next up, although many people will have experienced a broken heart in their lifetimes, some are more serious than others. Takotsubo cardiomyopathy is also known as broken heart syndrome. It is a heart condition brought on by stressful situations like the death of a loved one. But now scientists from the University Heart Center Zurich in Switzerland think they have found a connection between the condition and some cancers. Victoria Kaman is a research fellow in the team that's been conducting the study. Victoria, first off, what is Takotsubo syndrome? Takotsubo syndrome is an acute heart failure syndrome which mimics a heart attack. So in the emergency department, patients present with chest pain and dyspnea. And also ECG and biomarker changes are identical to that of acute myocardial infarction. Takotsubo, what does that mean? The term was first described in 1990 and originates from the Japanese, and it describes a historical part to catch octopus, which has a narrow neck and a white bottom. And on left ventriculography, the chamber of the left ventricle looks exactly like this part. So what are the symptoms? It's chest pain and shortness of breath. And what causes it? Usually physical or emotional triggering events, for example, a surgery or asthma exacerbation, or as an emotional triggering factor, it could be a loss of a beloved person. And is that why it's called broken heart syndrome? Yes. But in the last years, it has also been shown that physical triggers are much more common than emotional triggers. And these can also provoke a Takotsubo syndrome. How dangerous is Takotsubo syndrome? So for many years, it was thought that Takotsubo syndrome is a benign disorder. But in the last years, it has been uncovered that Takotsubo syndrome has a similar mortality rate to a heart attack. That sounds pretty serious. But your team now has found a link between the syndrome and the development of cancer. Can you tell us more about that? In our study, which we have recently published in the Journal of the American Heart Association, we have investigated clinical features and outcomes of patients with malignancy and Takotsubo syndrome. For this study, we have enrolled 1,600 patients from the International Takotsubo Registry. And our study has uncovered that a substantial number of TTS patients has cancer. And in comparison to patients with a heart attack, the prevalence of malignancies is much higher in Takotsubo syndrome. So what is the link? How does this develop? 
So for now, we cannot say how this develops. So this will warrant further research. It could be because patients with cancer, they have stress psychological stress due to the cancer itself or also due to the chemotherapy or the cancer treatment. And this could be a possible trigger for Takotsubo syndrome. What are the cancers that the syndrome is commonly linked to? Usually it's breast cancer or tumors affecting the gastrointestinal system or the respiratory tract. And Takotsubo syndrome commonly affects women more than men, is that right? Yes. Mostly, this disorder affects elderly females and is precipitated by a physical or emotional triggering event. Is there a screen for the syndrome prior to actually getting it? No, there is no screening. Do you think there would be a way to detect it? Would there be a physical marker that might identify someone prone to it? Patients with Takotsubo syndrome, they have a higher prevalence of for example, psychiatric or neurologic disorder. And these could be potentially predisposing factors. So what are the changes that you hope your research will bring? There seems to be a strong interplay between Takotsubo syndrome and malignancies. And therefore, all physicians should be aware of this possible interaction. And for Takotsubo syndrome patients, it should be recommended to participate in cancer screening to hopefully improve survival. That's really interesting. Victoria Kamen, thank you very much. Thank you. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. And finally, breathe in, breathe out. It might seem nice and easy, but for some people, keeping control of their breath can be a true challenge. In fact, over 300,000 people die across Europe from chronic breathlessness every year. And in Britain, it costs the National Health Service 11 billion pounds annually. But what causes it? That's what scientists from the University of Oxford are trying to find out. They showcase their work at the Royal Society's Summer Science Exhibition. The brain doesn't just listen to what the lungs tell it. It also uses our past experiences and our emotions. But sometimes the balance between new information and relying on old information gets upset. Researchers from Oxford are trying to use a new method to calculate how the brain affects the way you breathe. It's called the Bayesian brain. Researchers think it can help us understand how the brain and lungs work together and how each person's brain is influenced by their past experiences, their mood, and all sorts of other factors. We all know that your brain plays a huge role in helping you breathe, but it can also leave you feeling out of breath, even when your lungs can manage. Sarah Finnegan is a postdoctoral research scientist at the University of Oxford, and she's been studying the power the brain has over the ability to breathe. It's a relationship that people often don't think about because people think about their lungs when they think about breathing. But actually, the brain has such a huge amount of control over your breath and breathlessness. Right now, they're having a go on something we have nicknamed the Stepatron. 
and uh, we're asking people to step up and down on this step as many times as they can in 20 seconds which seems fine and then they repeat the exercise but this time only breathing through a very small straw and with a nose clip on their nose and people find that a lot more difficult and it's really showing how scary inescapable breathlessness can feel because you are exercising you want more air but there's nothing you can do you can't get it through the straw well, I was feeling quite smug at the start with the easy bit. And then when you get the clipper on and the straw, it's amazingly hard, much harder the second time around. I was a bit anxious after the first couple of puffs because I realised it was going to be harder. And uh, then it was tough, like pressure. I wasn't expecting it to be really easy, but I wasn't expecting it to be that hard. It's really salient, we find, for people who don't have anything going on with their lungs. It can often be really hard to imagine how it feels to be out of breath and not be able to escape it. Most of us know if we're going to run for the bus, we're going to get out of breath, but it's going to go away. But for people who live with conditions such as this, and it can come at any time, you know, on a warm day, or if they're going to climb the stairs, suddenly they become out of breath despite not actually having even exercised. So... Even if your lungs might be able to handle an activity like climbing the stairs, your brain can leave you feeling vulnerable. But how does this actually happen? There's lots of different hubs in the brain. Um, Some of them are kind of control circuits, automatic responses. Like if you think about your breathing, like you think about blinking, sometimes it becomes a bit more complicated. But there's other areas involved in emotion and memories. So there's lots of different hubs involved and everybody's different. So what we want to do is develop the right treatment for the right person because breathlessness affects one in ten people. So if we can develop treatments to help target that and combat that, then hopefully we can help a lot of people live better lives. Live better lives? Just how badly can chronic breathlessness affect people who are living with it? We find that people who live with chronic breathlessness, they actually change the way they behave. So initially you might be feeling a bit out of breath and you think, I can't go on my hiking holidays anymore. And then you get a bit more deconditioned, a bit less fit, a bit more afraid. And then you think, well, I won't climb the stairs. And then I won't go out to the shops and I won't see my friends. And then we have people shrinking their lives down to the point where they're just in their home, on their sofa, and really isolated. Rates of depression are really comorbid. And so we want to break that cycle and get people living a proper quality of life. Many people think that chronic breathlessness can be solved by going to the doctor and getting medicine like an asthma pump. But for lots of people, it's not that simple. So there are currently some treatments available. Um, For example, people with chronic lung disease, the most effective treatment is called pulmonary rehabilitation. And they go and they have a series of essentially exposure therapy. They exercise in a safe environment. They learn how to take their medication correctly. But that actually only helps 60% of the people who go, which is still amazing. But 40% of people are not helped by it. So we want to, for example, look at different drugs treatments. And we've been running a big five-year clinical trial on that. And we're also trying to look and understand about why people are different. So some people might be taking one inhaler and they might feel fine. Another person with a similar level of lung damage might take the same inhaler and not be helped at all. And we think that's where the brain's coming in. We think that's why understanding the brain networks is so important. Because that person might not need an inhaler. They might need a really specific brain-targeted treatment. So how do you train your brain? It could be. It's partly perhaps practice. It's partly, for example, if we hooked you up to some electrodes and we showed you your brain activity pattern, 
and we got you to change your behaviour so that the brain activity matched a certain pattern that we wanted you to match, then you would know what to do to get it to hit that point. So we get you to do that again and again and again. But this is really cutting-edge stuff. We just don't know what is going to come out of this, but what we do know is that we need to know a lot more about the brain networks themselves. And one of the ways they are trying to map these networks is by using models to show how the brain reacts when you breathe. So this is our brand-new 3D-printed brain-lung model. We called him Charlie, actually, because we made an animation custom specially for this stand called Charlie's Journey. And um, shall I hit the calm button? So you can see the lungs are moving at the normal rate, in fact, just between 12 and 18 times a minute. And you've got this rhythm generation circuit going on in the brainstem. And that controls your rate of breathing. And that's really automatic. So no matter how hard you might want to stop breathing, you will eventually gasp and breathe again. What we're now doing is contrasting that. I pause that for a second. With a panic condition, you can see the rate of breathing has changed. He's breathing much harder. But there's so many more brain areas involved. And we have emotional hubs down here, we have some memory involved, and that shows you how important it is to integrate your mood, your past experiences, into that breathing circuit. And what we think goes wrong is that the brain and the lungs aren't communicating in the way that they should be. So we, through our research, want to realign that that communication and get the two talking correctly. It's almost like two people having a row in a car as to where the car should be going. Two people having a row in a car... Okay, so how do you get everybody back on track to make sure the brain and lungs are heading in the right direction? Sarah thinks educating people about the Bayesian brain plays a huge role. We're really hoping that people can take away an understanding of how powerful your brain is over your feelings of breathlessness and also how feeling out of breath is really dependent on other things like your mood, your past experiences and your emotions. And they all come together in the brain and actually influence what's going on in the lungs. By doing specific exercises, Charlie was able to retrain his brain, which meant that finally breathlessness isn't such a big issue for him anymore. All thanks to the Bayesian brain. Thank you, Sarah Finnegan. This research is all in the early stages, but scientists are starting to find answers to complex problems by exploring the way different parts of our bodies relate to our brains. Thanks for listening to Babbage, and I'm sure we've taken your breath away. Don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts. It really does make a difference. I'm Kenneth Kukier, and in London, this is <sighs> The Economist. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.